right. Since the beginning of September, God has been bringing something home to us, and it goes like this. It's kind of a twofold thought that are totally related to one another, and the first thread goes like this. There are things that God has made clear to us that he wants us to do, and if we engage them seriously, if we actually go after them for their plain meaning to fulfill them, what we find is the, deep, the more that we try and fulfill it, the more that we discover we don't want to do what it's actually saying. Not only do we not want to do it, but in truth, it turns out we can't. We don't have what it takes in order to fulfill those scriptures the way that God is saying to fulfill them. We do not have that in us. And so we need a transformation. We need a change. Now, part of the thing that the Lord has been doing in this, remember he told those parables and everything else, and then he brought it home to the Sadducees, the Pharisees, and also the disciples, and also us, that there is a practical way of understanding all of these abstract parables and so on. And that was this idea, okay? And the idea was is money. This is not a tithe sermon. I keep saying that over and over. But, but, just, but money is where the rubber meets the road. Money is one of these things where we like to think that we're generous and we like to think that we're, that we're willing to, and some people are more miserly and some people are, but here's what, here's what nobody is really. And when I say nobody, I'm not saying there's not a person on the face of the earth that's not like this. I'm saying this is so uncommon as to be able to say this is not in us to do. When God comes along and with the first Christian community shows us what he wants from us, and he shows us how by saying this. Now, the large group, now there was a large group of those who believed and they were on one heart and mind. This is right after Jesus' ascended day of Pentecost. And no one said that any of his possessions were his own, but instead they held everything in common. There was not a needy person among them, which we know to be good, but the way it happened is because all those who owned land or houses sold them. They brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet. And then they were distributed to each person's basic needs. This is just not... You can, you can say I would do that. But when you actually have to do that, you, just, you start to discover <laughs> these other things inside of you that don't want to do that. And that make it virtually, not impossible, but virtually impossible for you to actually fulfill, and certainly to fulfill it in the way that God intended, which was this. Look, here's what God has said over and over and over. I'm your provision. I'm your provision. I'm your provision. Right? If that's true, if you follow that logic out, you should have no problem with this whatsoever. You should be rejoicing in the parts of the verse that talk about no one had any need. Because God was providing, just like he said he would. He's our provision, look, he's providing. Right? But it's just not how we live our lives. Unless you're, of course, Mario and Sherry, and then, you know, you do that. Okay. So, so you get the idea, okay? Now, when we say this, when we come to realize that there's things that we need to be transformed in, that we're not capable of doing it. What we're saying is, is only God can do that. And that's a perfectly lovely, wonderful Christian thing to say, but it does become Christianese when we don't know how to actually live it. And that's the problem. 
We say, I get it, only God can change me. So what do I do? Am I supposed to just go over here in the corner and twiddle my thumbs and do nothing? I mean, here's what Paul says. Oh foolish Galatians, who's cast evil spell on you? The meaning of Jesus Christ's death was made as clear to you as if you'd seen a picture of his death on the cross. Let me ask you this one question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit by obeying the law of Moses? Did you do something to earn it? Did you live up to the law? Of course not. You received the Spirit because you believed the message you heard about Christ. So how foolish can you be? After starting your new lives in the Spirit, a thing of grace given to you by God, why are you now trying to become perfect by your own human effort? See it? So it is good Christianese. I mean, it's good sound Christian doctrine and theology to say that only God can do these things, but it becomes Christianese when we don't know how to actually live that. Well, that's one of the things that we're going after today. But I said that there were two things, and the second one goes like this. There's a parallel thought that goes along with it, and here's how it goes. When you're not living up to the things that Scripture has commanded, when you're not doing that, what do we do? When we see scriptures like this, or when we see scriptures like the giving all our possessions away, what do we do? Yeah, well, how could you? I love that. That is awesome. We dumb the scripture down. We, in our own minds and our hearts, we make it mean something different than what it clearly and plainly means, so that somehow we can say that we're living up to, or at least close to, in some type of harmony with, and not just in utter disobedience against, Right? We change the scriptures to fit what we want. That's what we do. Now, watch this. This is a scripture I use all the time, and I want to give you the context of it. Watch this about people that do that, because here's what, here's what Paul has to say about it. Here's what God has to say through Paul. You should know this. In the last days, there will be very difficult times. For people will love only themselves and their money. They'll be boastful and proud, scoffing at God. They'll be unloving, unforgiving. They'll slander others and have no self-control. They will be puffed up with pride and love pleasure rather than God. Now, Christians, in our typical way, will say, I know that's the way the people of the world are. But did you know that that was talking about Christians? Because what they have is they act religious. Secular people don't act religious. They're not trying to live up to anything. They're just living how they live, and they're doing all that stuff. But what he's saying is, is Christians will be doing that too. They will act religious, but they reject the power that could have made them godly. Now, if you, if you don't believe that this is about Christians, look at the next verse. These teachers oppose the truth. You know, he's, he's talking about Christian teachers preaching this dumbing down of the scripture which denies the power of God in order to make you feel better about your lack of being where God wants us to be. You see it? They've depraved minds in a counterfeit faith. This is Paul going after other Christian teachers. <laughs> you see it? Can I just say right now, we might want to take this a little seriously. We might want to look at this for a second. In fact, let me, let me bring this home, how important this message actually is. Let's say two things. First one. If you're not living your Christian life in a way that you are coming to an ever greater understanding of your rebelliousness against God and your lack of an ability to do anything about it, 
It doesn't mean you don't also understand that Jesus Christ has saved you and made you new. That's the transformation he does, right? You also understand that. But if you're not living life in a way that you're coming to an understanding of, oh my gosh, there's still these things in me. I'm not saying to go into condemnation. God doesn't bring us into condemnation. But what I am saying is, if you're, not living, your, if you think, if you're living your life in a way that you're kind of going, I'm doing pretty good. If you're not living, you know, sorry, I'm going to keep using it probably all, all day today. But Mario and, Sherry, Mario and Sherry are doing an extraordinary thing, Right? But when you get to the heart, when you talk to him, and I have talked to him, when you talk to him about what's really going on in their hearts, they're not doing it and going, oh, we're doing pretty good in the Lord. What they're doing is saying, there's something missing, there's something wrong, there's something that's driving me. There's something that's, the word that he used was burdening me. There's something that I've got to deal with. This is what a Christian walk is. It's not condemnation because you have hope. There really is a transforming power. But if you're not living your life in a way where the transforming power is getting to the place where you recognize your need for it continually, you really have to wonder, very carefully said now, whether or not you're actually a Christian. Because a Christian means a person that follows Christ. And here's what Christ did in teaching the Sadducees and the Pharisees, and then the disciples, and then us. He taught us, you're so, you don't get it. That's what those parables all said, remember? You don't get it. The thing that I'm asking you for is so much more than you even have an understanding of. You're not getting it. So again, I'm not saying it for condemnation. I'm saying it for recognition. <laughs> I'm saying that we need to own something that's serious and real. And it's important in the last days. <laughs> right? Know this. People are going to be like this. They're going to be after what they want, not what God's trying to do. But now let's take the converse. Okay, that's the bad part, right? The hard part. But now let's take the converse and let's understand this. When you get to where you're doing the things that God wants you to do, here's the point. You're doing things that you never even imagined could happen. See, watch this. I speak with words of wisdom, says God through Paul, but not the kind of wisdom that belongs to this world. See, there is the kingdom of this world and then there is the kingdom of God. And most people are living here in the kingdom of the world, even as Christians. No, the wisdom we speak is the mystery of God. And it's going into something specific, but I'm good for doing it the way I'm doing it here. The rulers of this world have not understood it. The world doesn't get this other thing. Important principle for today. That is what the scriptures mean when they say, no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. Now, in a sense, that's talking about heaven, but I want you to understand we're appropriating and living in heaven now to the degree that we can. We're supposed to be, we're right, we're supposed to be living that kingdom here now as much as we can. And he's saying, no eyes seen, no ears heard. I didn't even enter your imagination what God would do through you if you would just give up this other stuff that's holding you back and start stepping into the fullness of what it means over here. This is the story that you guys will have when you come back here two or three years from now. And you might be back six months from now because this is where God has called you and then we're going to hear the story and watch it unfold right in front of our eyes too. Right? This is what he's trying to do. Do we get it? No eye has seen, ears heard, no mind has imagined what's prepared for those. I'm going to say something. A year and a half, no longer than that now, January 2015, I stood right here and I told you, I said, I think that the Lord told me and I've submitted it for your discernment, right? That's what you do with a word. 
you, you give it to the body and you say, what do you think? And I said, I think that the Lord has told me that he is withdrawing his protection. That he's not all of it, but he's withdrawing it to a degree and he's letting us slip down a notch so that we will more experience the consequences of our decisions. Now, I think you can look almost anywhere and see that that word has certainly played out over the last year and several months. The political climate, the election that we're in right now for president could not, in my mind, be more of a proof positive of God allowing something to happen which didn't used to happen. Okay? I mean, it's just unbelievable what's happening right now. And we're experiencing the consequences of our actions to a new degree and in a new way. But now watch. If that's happening, what else is God always doing? Where sin abounds, there much more so does grace. Here's what I think God is trying to do, and I'm giving you what I think might be a word from the Lord. I'm not even totally sure on this one, but I believe it to be true, and I'm submitting it to you for your discernment, and we'll watch it as we do, because that's what we do with words around here. We watch to see if they're true, and if they're not true, we correct ourselves and learn from it, and if they are true, then we learn from that. We take them seriously, but I'm telling you something, and I believe this, or I wouldn't be saying it. I'm not as strong on it as I was the other one. This wasn't a word like the other one was, but this is something the Lord has laid on my heart. I really believe that as the world is going into a place of confusion and despair and, and, and into a place of, of what the heck are we supposed to do, I really believe that the Lord is going to start doing more things of power. What I mean by that is this. I think he's going to start doing more miracles. Now, immediately I need to say this. I am not talking about miracles as in the circus. I'm not talking about somebody standing up there and laying hands and everybody falling down and all this kind of showy, circusy stuff, okay? And the reason why I'm not saying that is because I want you to understand something about God's miracles because this is always true. I'm going to show it to you in a sec. When God does a miracle, he's not proving anything. He's just giving you evidence. You still get to pick whether or not it was true or not. So God is not going to be doing miracles in a way that people are going to go, well, you know, that guy was dead and now he's alive and there's no other way to explain it. So clearly that must be why I believe. That would be basing your belief on the miracle, which was the word that we had earlier today. Don't base your faith on miracles. Don't base your faith on the things that God does. Base your faith on God. Right? And the bottom line is, is that I believe that what he's going to be doing is things through us with people that we love in a way that they will have a very clear choice to make. The thing that is happening as we slide and the thing that God is saying could be in your life. And people will be making a choice. He's bringing the choice to bear by what he wants to do through you. Through you, through you, through you. Do you see it? Are we getting it? I think he wants to do this. Now I'm gonna show you something. This is a picture of Tim Tebow. And I, you may like him or not like him. I don't really care. But I want to show you. This is, he was, he was playing a baseball game, and then it was done. He was signing autographs. And a guy, while he was signing autographs, fell and had a seizure, apparently. That's what they think it probably was. And he had a seizure. And what did Tim do? Well, he reached down, and he prayed for the guy. And many newspapers reported it as miracle because he prayed for him. And then everybody said it was just right as he was praying for him. Right then, the guy stopped seizing. Now, understand who I am because it'll help you understand, and I think it's good theologically that I'm this way. 
when I read that and they were saying it was a miracle, I was saying, yeah, or the seizure stopped. Right? I don't know if it was a miracle or not. I don't know. And I'm not saying it wasn't, but I'm not going to sit here and say with complete certainty that it was because I don't know. Seizures do stop, you know, usually. <laughs> right? And so maybe there was just good timing on it. But here's the reason why I bring this up. Look what he's doing. Somebody fell down and seized in front of him. And look what his reaction was. His reaction. His reaction was to reach down and pray for the guy. Is that who we are? Do we do that? That's the example here. That's the lesson here. His first instinct was pray. <laughs> is that ours? Or is it, yes, I'll pray, but over here. See? Will you get in the fray? <laughs> Will you get in the mix? Will you go after this? You see it? It's, it right? And, and here's what I'm saying. I don't know that, that guy thinks it was a miracle, but I don't know if it was a miracle. I don't know if it wasn't a miracle. I don't know if Tim knows if it was a miracle or not. I don't think anybody's ever going to know except God, and maybe one day he'll let, us, he'll let somebody else know when they're in heaven kind of deal, right? Here's what I do know. Here's what I believe. Here's the word that I'm, not word because like I said it wasn't a word, but here's the sense that I have of what God's going to do, that I'm submitting to you, and I hope it brings you some excitement. God wants to do things through you to affect people that you love that are going through hard things. He wants to put you right in the mix. He wants to give people a reason to know that he's there. In the middle of the slide, he wants to bring hope that they can choose if they will. See it? And again, I submit that to you, and we'll see, right? We'll watch it like we do. But we're about to talk about something, long intro, short sermon, promise. You've heard that before? <laughs> it's going to happen this time, by faith. Okay? I really do mean it, though. You can, you, can, you, can, you can put your timer on it. Okay, watch. Now watch. No, don't do that. <laughs> this stuff that we're talking, yeah, thank you. This stuff that we're talking about is not small. This stuff that we're talking about is not abstract. It is abstract in a sense, but it's practical. And it's important. And here's, what's, here's what I'm saying. He wants to use you to make a difference in the world. He wants to use you to make a difference in the world. This part, we don't even have to wonder if that's true. He wants to use you to make a difference in the world. And that means you getting out of your comfort zone. That means you getting out of the sidelines. That means you getting into the fray. That means you being the kind of person that will do what we heard before the sermon with Mario and Sherry. Right? God is demonstrating it to us. Showing us. And here's what he's doing with us. Now we get to make a choice. <laughs> it's not just them, it's you. It's us. Who do you want to be? Right? Do you want to see stuff that eye has not seen, ear has heard, and is phenomenal? God doing the most incredible, intimate, nuanced, subtle, beautiful, wonderful, powerful things? Or do you want to be going over here? I don't understand why Christianity doesn't work. And yet it should be as plain as day. 
We good? Who's our prayer? Rick Curtis. Oh, what a perfect person to pray for this. Wow. Uh, another couple, another couple that are, it's just, God, what a fun family this is to be in. Uh, Rick, this is a couple that has given their lives to Christ. They are living their lives for Christ. Everything they do, everything they think about, everything they are about is Christ. Now, see, they're saying no because they know themselves. But I get to say it from the outside because that's what, you may have struggled with it, but you're letting Jesus win. So go ahead, Rick. Thank you. So, Lord, we just uh, come to you, and what's on my heart is to humble ourselves. Amen. To hear what you're saying to us individually today. I hear it for myself. And... These are some hard words in your scripture, but we want to follow you. So may we be honest with ourselves and with you and with each other as you lead us into places we have not known. May we humble ourselves and come low before you and acknowledge that we can't do this on our own. Thank you, Lord. So, and I also pray for uh, Woodenville, no, excuse me, uh, uh, Union Hill Alliance Church. Thank uh, Father, thank you for what you're doing there and how you're thank building you. that place thank up. And thank more and more Lord. people are coming there for healing Lord, thank in that you, place. Thank I just you, pray for release of your Holy Spirit and newness for them. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Awesome. All right, the passage that we're in, remember we've done a bunch of parables. It's right towards the end of Jesus' ministry. He's about to be taken away. He's trying to put into them what it will take for them to do well after he's gone. Of course, the Holy Spirit is given, so we got the Holy Spirit leading us. But the bottom line is, is the, the place that we're in, and we've already looked at this place, but remember what he did was, he, he did parables. He says, you don't get it, you don't get it, you don't get it. And then, and this is key, then he brought it home by showing them on a financial level, by showing the religious leaders, but also the disciples and also us, he made it very practical. This money thing is a big deal. It's where the rubber meets the road. And he finishes that thing up by saying it this way. The Pharisees who were lovers of money were listening to all these things when he said, you know, your heart's not in the right place. You're stealing from God, so on. And they scoffed at him and he told them, you were the ones who justify yourselves in the sight of others, but God knows your hearts. What is highly admired by people is revolting in God's sight. The law and the prophet were until John, since then the good news of the kingdom of God has been proclaimed, and everyone is strongly urged to enter it, but it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of the letter in the law to drop out. Now that, this is not what we're going after. We're just going to do one verse today. But watch what this verse is, because this is a total non sequitur. He's been talking about money, he's been talking about this and everything else, and then all of a sudden, this is what he has to say. And it's almost like, wow, did that just get shoehorned in there by some writer or something? It didn't, but watch. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery, and everybody who marries a woman divorced to her husband commits adultery. What the heck does that have to do with anything he's been talking about? It, it, it's, to me, the equivalent of this. Right? The needle skipped and boop, you know, okay, what, where'd we, what, what, what are we doing now? Where'd that come from? Now, let me show you where it came from. Jesus brought an abstract idea of not getting it home, rubber meet the road, to our lives, in money. 
And now he's taking it to a second place. Marriage. I've been doing this for 30-some years. By far, if people come to me and they're struggling, it's either money or marriage. Throw sex in, then put it under the marriage thing. You know, it's, it's almost like that's four-fifths of it. And then the other fifth is something else. It can be almost anything. But three-fifths at least. Finances and marriage. This is what people are struggling with. When you get together in your threefold and you're struggling with something you're struggling with, what's it usually about? Money or marriage, right? I mean, that's just the way it is. Money and relationships. Now, here's what the problem is. He has made it abundantly clear. He's brought it home to a real place about money. And now what he's done is he said, look, these things of the law that I'm talking to you about, it's not just money. It's in something else that you guys have gotten cockeyed. You got the money thing cockeyed so that the Pharisees ended up being lovers of money and loving their positions at the tables, and religion became something that was, that was to be sought after for fame and for wealth and for grandeur. Well, that's dumb, right? And what he's saying is, is you couldn't get it right on the money, but you can't get it right on the marriage either. And the marriage thing is more important. Why? Because it has to do with oneness. Watch this. Here's where it comes from that there's an issue here. Okay, Deuteronomy. If a man marries a woman, but she becomes displeasing to him because he finds something improper about her, he may write her a divorce certificate, hand it to her, and send her away from his house. Okay? Now, there's two schools of thought on this in rabbinical schools, right? There's a whole bunch of rabbis that argue things, and they argue in the margins of, if you've ever seen a Jewish Bible, it's right in here. And right in the Jewish Bible, in the Old Testament, about this scripture, you will see two primary famous rabbis that are arguing about this very point. What does it mean when they say displeasing to him, finding something improper? What does it mean? There is a, what we might call, a very limited, strict interpretation but then there is another interpretation, which is the one we're going to go after right now. We're going to come back to the other one later. But the one that we're going after right now is there was another interpretation that basically just said, well, you know, like if she's, not, if she's bumming you out, if, if, if it's, you know, if it's like not working, if she's displeasing to you. Literally, one of the rabbis says, for example, if she keeps burning your meals, then you can dismiss her because she's not pleasing to you. That's what the word says, what he says. Right? It's not what they say at all. But this is what he says. Now, I want to say something. If you burn my wheels, meals, you're in. Julie's a great cook, and she doesn't burn the meals. And so, you know, I get to divorce her because she doesn't burn my meals. No. No, she actually burns them for me because she knows I like them burnt. So, but, but the bottom line is, is I want you to see how stupid that interpretation is. How much it doesn't fit and comport with the rest of Scripture. Okay? Now watch. What's the point of marriage? For this reason, a man will leave. This is, this is Ephesians, but it's quoting Genesis 2. So this is at the very beginning, right, when there was this one being that we call Adam, and then he was made two beings that we call Adam and Eve, and they were separated, and what's been the goal of all mankind and all of what God's doing ever since? To put what was separated back together. Think about God and us. We were separated, and he's trying to put us back together. 
For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Now, understand, one flesh, what does that mean? Yesterday, I got to spend some time with three different babies from two different families. One of them was, um, um, oh my gosh, I have it in my head. Benjamin, come on, help me. Jonathan. Jonathan Benjamin, okay? And, and that was just so cool, you know what I mean? I mean, he's just so wonderful. Uh, you look at Jocelyn, though. Right? I mean, most of you don't know who I'm talking about, but look at a kid, and then look at the parents, and with Jocelyn, you've never seen two becoming one more. I mean, Jocelyn looks like both of those guys, doesn't I mean, it's, it's just unbelievable. She just looks exactly like, you're like, well, I see both of you right there. The two become one flesh. The other one, by the way, was Who's Camps, who five and a half weeks early had their twins. Okay, one of them wasn't gaining weight anymore, and so they went into an emergency, and it wasn't an emergency. Five weeks, is, and they're doing really, really well. And one of them is like three pounds, seven ounces, and they need to get some fat on her so that she can stay warm. That's why I'm so hot right now. But, uh, but, but you know, I mean, just like the size of a hand. You know what I mean? Just the coolest thing, right? So to become one flesh is a real thing. But that's the metaphor for the real thing. Because the real thing is, things that have been separated, guys trying to put back together as one, as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, being three distinct personhoods, are one. See it? So that's what the point of marriage is about. In fact, to the point that it says, this mystery is profound, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. Ultimately, God is saying what he's saying about marriage, not because it's about your marriage. He's saying your marriage is trying to teach you how to be one with an other. And clearly, anybody that's been married over, say, you know, like a year understands that in a marriage, there's like an other in there, <laughs> right? You know, you thought you were like just, and then you found out you weren't. And now you got to work through what this other is and how to become one with that, right? How to become one with that person. But he goes on to say, look, I'm praying for those. This is Jesus' last prayer, what it's all about. I'm praying not only for those disciples, but for all who will ever believe in me through their message. I pray that they will all be one. This is the text verse. This is the proof text for this church. I pray that they will all be one just as you and I are one, as you are in me, Father, and I am in you. May they be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. I've given them the glory you gave me so that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. Now here's the point that I want to bring out of this well-known scripture by us. I have given them the glory you gave me so that they can be one. Here's what's being said. You cannot be one with somebody else. Whether you're married to them and really love them, or whether it's somebody in a church family, or whatever it is, you cannot become the kind of oneness that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are. You cannot do that. But God can, and he gives you his glory, the Holy Spirit, to lead you, to guide you if you'll follow, to lead you in how to become ever more, ever more closely, ever more deeply, ever more intimately one with that other as a type for what it is for us to become one with him who is other. See it? So this is what marriage is about. This is what God wanted. It wasn't because she burned your toast. 
Jesus replied, Moses permitted divorce only as a concession to your hard hearts, but it's not what God originally intended. In fact, God says it this way at one point in time. I just want to show you the verses. You cry out, why doesn't the Lord accept my worship? This is a great, great, boy, I wish people would get a hold of this. Why doesn't the Lord accept my worship? I'll tell you why. Because the Lord witnessed the vows you and your wife made when you were young, but you've been unfaithful to her. You've put her out. Let me, this oneness that we're talking about. Jesus looked at them intently. This is the rich young ruler, but it's, but it's good for this, what we're talking about. Humanly speaking, it's impossible for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Humanly speaking, it's impossible for Julie and me to be one. Impossible. Not the way the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are. Not in the fullness of what those words mean. It is impossible. But humanly speaking, it's impossible. With God, everything's possible. <laughs> now, let me just do something here. Think about, if you're married, and if you're, not, if you're gonna be married, I want you to think about this too. Think about it. What level of marriage are you going for? <laughs> Is it one where you kinda are nice to each other? Where you get along pretty good? Where you like each other? What are you going for? What's your target? Right? Because I'll tell you what God's target is. The same oneness that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have. Is that anybody's target in here? Because I've got to tell you, I've been married a long time, and, and I've adjusted my target <laughs> to something that I feel might be more attainable. <laughs> and what a, what, a, what a terrible loss to me that is. What a terrible decision that is. You see it? I've literally written down in a little app that helps me correct habits. And one of the just very few that I have, I only have like three. One of them is Julie and me my relationship. And I think on the curve, we have a really good relationship. But I got to tell you, I recognize that there's something else entirely that God has for us that I have not tapped into. And when the world sees what people cannot do, they say, how did you do that? Because <laughs> the world's seen plenty of marriages that are doing pretty good and have worked through some things. But how many times have you seen a marriage that's one? And I mean one for 40 years. Right? Are, are we getting this? Are we getting the feel for what God wants to do? Understand the real problem of when they say that you can put her out because she displeases. If God's intent is to make you, well, if God's intent is to make you one, excuse me, Julie and I are married. Now, she doesn't burn my meals, so I put her out. Now, this is where you gotta go back to a culture that is not our culture, because sexually, you know, having slept with more than one person is almost like what you're supposed to do that. But that's not God's intent, right? When you sleep with somebody, you become one with them. 
And God intended that people would only sleep with one other person ever because he wasn't saying, go sleep with other gods. He was saying, you and me alone, right? But now understand something. When God was saying, you cannot put her out, here's what he was actually doing. He was protecting the woman. That's why this whole thing about displeasing because she's not doing what's good for you is bull. And there's another word that goes after that. What he's doing, he's protecting it because watch. See, a woman in that day and age, should be true in this day and age too, but in that day and age, a woman that had slept with one man even though she was married to him and then goes and sleeps with another man is not the way it's supposed to be, see? This is not a chaste woman. This is not a pure woman. This is a woman who has had, and I, I know that there's people here that would, this could be, uh, this whole thing about divorce and everything, and everything I'm about, uh, that I'm saying right now could be pulling up all kinds of things in you. Would you just do me a favor? I don't know. I think maybe God's going to have me talk about it again. I don't know. It kind of feels like he might. We're going to go into more detail on what a lot of these things mean and, and how we handle them and what we do about them. But the thing that I want you to understand is, is what God was trying to do for this sermon, what God was trying to do here was, when he said, you can't put her out except for one reason, and we'll get to it in a sec what that is, if you can't put her out, what he's trying to do is he's trying to protect the woman so that you don't end up making her, essentially, a whore. You don't end up making her an adulteress by what you've done, by putting her out. He's protecting her. Which is why this idea that somehow, you know, it was giving us permission to do this, and Jesus has already said it's the hardness of your hearts, this is not what God intended. It's because you guys are all messed up. And by the way, let me say something. This total sidebar. When somebody takes that Luke verse and says the only reason, you know, you cannot get divorced, and then they keep somebody in some marriage that is just a total wreck, and they just say, you just have to stay in it no matter what a wreck it is and all that kind of stuff, that is just, that's taking Christianity and turning, it, turning love into a sledgehammer and beating somebody who's already been beaten over the head. Whether it, I'm not saying physically, but somebody who's already struggling and hurting and is just beating them over the head. There is a grace. That, understand it this way. If you want to know what the grace is, I'm doing a very short-handed thing on a very deep thing. But here's what the grace is. What makes you think you don't still have a hard heart? And if God made provision for a hard heart before, don't you think that he has grace for you now? So if you've experienced this, if something has happened in your life, go to him in, for grace. You do understand what the holiness is, what the typology is, what the thing he's trying to illustrate is, but nonetheless, keep grace, right? Understand love. All your doctrine, all your theology has to have love as its heart or it's not good. Okay, now if you want to talk about that more because it triggered something, please talk to me and like I say, maybe we'll do another sermon. But for right now, I just want to show you the, the ESV, English Standard Version, which is a more literal translation. It gets it better. It says, if he, if he finds no favor in his eyes because he's found some indecency in her, and the word indecency there, that Greek word that's underneath that one, what it's talking about is infidelity. It's talking about when you go and you sleep with someone else, you've joined yourself to them and you become one with them. And what he's saying is, is that person was one with you, and then they went somewhere else, and if that happens, then yeah, there's a break. Now, by the way, there's a whole Bible story about God having taken back a woman that kept doing that over and over and over, right? And God showing us the faithfulness he has for us. So again, grace. But are we good here? Okay? Because where I want to get to is this. 
I want to get in our marriages, I want to get in our, not just our marriages, in our relationships with one another. I want to get to a place where no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. If the number one thing that he's doing is trying to make people one, right? Not just in your marriages, but in your relationships with everybody. If the number one thing that God is trying to do in all the world is to make everybody experience what he experiences as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I want us to start thinking that there's something that he has in all of our relationships that we're not seeing. There's something more to them. Don't say, well, you know, we're pretty good friends, but you know, they did this to me, so I get to be this way about that. See? Or, you know, I kind of like them, but I'm just not going to pursue. Or, or, or. See what I mean? Don't do the things that we do that allow us to put up fences and call it good, because everybody has their own house with their own nice little fenced-in yard. Understand that God is the one who said to everybody, all, everything you have to everybody. This is the oneness that he's going for. And I want us to get to that place. So here's what my, here's what my thing is. If, if we can't do the money thing, and now we've discovered we can't do the relationship thing, whether it's marriage or just relationships, if we can't actually get to oneness, what do we do? How do we get there? Here's an analogy. I'm going to use it to help us understand. How do we get to the place to where we're participating in the thing that only God can do? So we're not just sitting in the corner twiddling our thumbs. What's the thing that we're supposed to be doing? Do you guys remember right left brain? If you've been here for any length of time at all, you couldn't possibly forget this because we talk about it all the time. Uh, here's the way most people think about it. I always say on the left-hand side are the accountants and the people that are doing all of the, the, you know, the, the facts, the figures, and the science, and the math. And then on the right-hand side is the fun, right? You get to go for a picnic, and you get to paint pictures and play music, and you get to fly kites. So creativity on the right, and numbers and math and things you hate on the left. Okay? Was there any bias in that statement? Okay. But that's not how it is at all. In fact, what right and left brain, if you had to illustrate it, it's more like this. What happens is the left is indeed always gathering information, gathering information as much as it can gather. And then the right comes over what the left is gathering and says, how do I find a pattern in that? What, how do I make meaning out of that? How do, I make, how do I understand what these facts are telling me? What do they mean? See that? And then when you go, oh, I think I kind of know what they mean, then the left brain will go out and try and get more information to confirm whether that interpretation of what you thought was true is true. So you see how it's always swirling? It's always moving. As the, as the, as the right brain gets meaning, the left brain goes out and searches for more information to, to, you know, maybe you're wrong about it, and you gather more information, so you switch. So the right and the left brain are always in this constant, interwoven, you can't break them apart, conversation. One gathering information, one coming up with meaning, and always working back and forth with each other. That's how the brain works. Now, I want you to use that as an analogy to Proverbs and Psalms. This is the thing of the service. This is the thing of the message. Almost done. Proverbs. This is the thing. Proverbs is the thing of flesh, world, and law. Don't, don't misunderstand me when I say this. Proverbs was divinely inspired. God gave Solomon wisdom and when he wrote down Proverbs, it was godly insight on how to live in the world. Okay? 
So don't think that I'm saying that Proverbs is not important or not godly. Just understand something. Proverbs is about this kingdom, this worldly kingdom. It's not about this kingdom. Proverbs is about how do you be a good spouse? How do you be a good laborer? How do you be a good boss? How do you be whatever it is? See, there's a lot of behavior modification going on here. There's a lot of this is what you should do and not do, and this is how you should act and everything else. And the truth of the matter is the person that doesn't understand Proverbs and doesn't live accordingly gets beat to a pulp by life because this is how the world works, and it was godly inspired by Solomon to talk about how the world worked. But never misunderstand something else about Proverbs. Proverbs does not get you to salvation. It teaches you how to live in this world better, but it doesn't get you into this kingdom. And if you don't believe me, just take the last thing that Solomon ever wrote. I believe Solomon wrote, wrote the book of Ecclesiastes, and he did this at the end of his life because his life ended in failure. The guy who had the most wisdom on the face of the earth, his life ended in failure. And you hear the spirit of it right here. Absolute futility, says Solomon. Everything is futile. Listen to what he says. My son, be warned, there is no end to the making of many books. What did Solomon do? He made many books. <laughs> and much study wearies the body. What did Solomon do? He studied a lot. What's he telling you? God, all this stuff that I gave myself to is just wearing me out. Boy, this is a really hopeful way to end a book. <laughs> Real God note here, right? Now watch. When all has been heard, the conclusion of the matter is this. Fear God. I'm not saying there's not a God component in the world. There should be and the things of the world. Fear God and keep his commandments because that's all there is for humanity. For God will bring every act to judgment, including every hidden thing, whether good or evil. Understand this. Understand the sort of hopelessness of the statement that's being made there. Here's what he's saying. The end of it is this. Keep your head down and hope it works out. Do fear God, and then just keep your head down and hope it works out, because that's what I found, to the point that you do remember he had 700 wives and 300 concubines, and they turned his heart away from the Lord. Ecclesiastes is his way of trying to tell people, everything I did that you admire so much didn't get me there. That's why it's in the Bible. Proverbs will teach you how to live in this world, but it won't teach you how to get to the kingdom of God. That's what Psalms does. Psalms is the one that says, I'm running around and I'm being persecuted and people are about to kill me and oh my God, I have no hope. God, you gotta show up. <laughs> You've got to break into this world. There's got to be something more. There is something more. Come and fix this because <laughs> I am sunk here. Do you see it? Over and over and over, the psalmist cries out to the Lord to intervene. It's hopeless, but you can do something about it. And then when he does, they praise him in the Psalms. Here's just one example of the one that happened on Tuesday. This is Psalm 44, and I posted this. Let me read it to you. If you want to make your theology big, I mean really big, to the point that you might not even like it, which is actually where we discover God most deeply, check out Psalm 44. Here's how it goes, the flow of it. It starts with, you did miracles with our ancestors, praise you God. Then the second movement is, 
you are allowing, you are doing and allowing horrible things to happen to us. Now, normally that would mean this. We must be at fault. We must be in sin. We need to repent. But here's where the psalmist takes it. This is uh, Sons of Corinth. Which don't mean we've, we've abandoned you. But then the psalmist says, we've not done anything wrong. We've not forgotten you. Instead, now listen to what he says. This is the psalmist. You've sold us out for nothing, Lord. <laughs> you didn't even get a good price for us. That's what it says in the psalm. The psalmist says this. And I'm sitting here reading this psalm and saying, how do they let that in the Bible? <laughs> this is horrible. And then an amazing thing happened. In verse 22, a verse that's written by Jesus' disciples, Christians. Here's a verse, verse. Yet for your sake we're killed all along. We're counted as sheep for slaughter. Now understand, when the psalmist wrote that, he's saying, you've sold us out for nothing. What we are, God, is sheep that are killed all day long for the slaughter. That's an accusation against God. It's not a nice thing. <laughs> it's an accusation. As if God has to defend himself. But guess what? We who have the advantage of seeing these things play out over a longer period of time, we see that Jesus used this verse about what had happened to him. He didn't do anything wrong. And yet he was a sheep that was led to slaughter. And you know who he was actually talking about when it was referenced by Paul in Romans? The disciples. What did they do wrong? They just followed Jesus, and what he said to them was, is you're now going to be sheep slaughtered. And all of them but John were. This is a bummer. Let's try some other religion. <laughs> but you know where that comes in? It's Romans 8, 36, and it's right after. You can never be separated from God's love. No matter height, no depth, no width, no breadth, nothing can separate you from the love of God even when you're being slaughtered as sheep in a way that doesn't make any sense to you. God's love. Jesus Christ was the sheep that was slaughtered for no reason. And it manifests love. And if we complete his suffering by being sheep also who were slaughtered for no good reason, but in a way that God is using to bring other people to him, to bring the fullness of the Lord and the history to, to pass. All of a sudden it becomes beautiful. It doesn't become beautiful because it fits inside the box of this world. It's only beautiful because there's something else going on entirely. And it's invading this space. You see it? So here's the point. When you're living your life, you've got to live Proverbs and Psalms. All the time. But now watch. I don't mean inequality. Watch this. Here's what I mean. Here's how you have to live Proverbs. God, you've said something about my marriage today. I now realize that I've compromised the scriptures about love and so on in order to make myself comport with them. And I now realize that I am way outside of what you actually want for me to be in my marriage. Way outside of it. And so I tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to do everything I can. Therapy, books, seminars. I'm going to do what I can to learn how to do marriage in this worldly way better. But now watch. 
Here's what I'm not going to do. And this is where the key of the whole sermon right here. Here's what I'm not going to do. I'm not going to think that I can make myself good enough. I'm going to work at getting better. Why? Because the harder I work at getting better, the more I realize how I'm not able to get where God wants me. You see it? The harder I work at getting it right, the more I come to understand precisely what's wrong, precisely where my lack is. And if I'm trying really hard to get it right and I cannot get it right, what do I do? I start crying out like the psalmist. This isn't working. What's going on? I can't do this. God, you must come and rescue me. And having made that free will choice for God to come and invade where I am, I have the chance of being transformed in a way that I could never do. Do you see it? When you work Proverbs as the law, the law wasn't for you to fulfill it. The law was to teach you that you couldn't fulfill it. It doesn't mean you don't keep trying. It just means that you work it until the point you become desperate so that you cry out for the only one that can actually do it because now you get what he needs to do. <laughs> because you tried and you couldn't get there. Are we getting this? I, I really need to just ask briefly. I, this is really important. I'm just going to take two seconds Somebody talk to me. Is there, a, is there a, somebody got a question about this? I'm not looking for a comment. I'm looking for, do you understand what I'm saying here? Is this resonated? Has it come home? Okay. So is there anybody who's got a question that they would ask at this point in time? Are you saying this, Kurt? I think this. Or, or do we all just get it? Did I do a good job and God actually moved and we all get what's being said? Where are we here? We good? Any questions? This is the confidence that we have before Jesus, before God. Whenever we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears whatever we ask, we know that we have what we've asked for from him. You see it? Be the kind of people who work Proverbs right into the ground, who work it to a point of desperation so that you cry out for God to come and do the miracle. And I started it by saying, I think he's going to do a lot more miracles. And as you get miracles, you're going to be the kind of person that's going to reach out and give them. So Lord, in Jesus' holy and precious name, this congregation comes with